Hi, everybody. Welcome to Unrestricted, the podcast that interviews noted public figures that have now returned to a more private life. My name is Steve Savitsky, president of B'nai Tzion Foundation, former president and chairman of many Jewish organizations. The people you're about to meet have great wisdom and experience. They were all leaders in the Jewish world and have much to share, unrestricted, with our listening audience. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Unrestricted. And today I have really the great honor, really a tremendous, tremendous honor for me and for our program to have Abe Foxman who was the former national director of the Anti-Defamation League for decades and decades and decades, and one of the foremost leaders in the world, Jewish leaders in the world. Uh, Abe, good morning. How are you? Good to be with you. Well, thank you very much. So obviously you're a person that's been in the news forever. Whatever you say has been recorded, press releases, then you retire. So what's life been like since you've retired? And how's it been for you? How's it been for your family? And kind of update all, all of our listeners because people want to know what you're doing. Well, it's been a um, shift from a Jewish professional to a Jewish volunteer. So all my life, I've been a Jewish professional working with Jewish lay leaders and volunteers. And so in the last five, seven years, I've switched roles and have become a volunteer. And interestingly, in, in one major area, and that is in Holocaust memory. I now serve on the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Council. I am a board member of Yad Vashem. I'm a board member of the Warsaw Ghetto Museum. I serve on the New Jersey Holocaust Commission. So it's a new role. It's, it's, it's dealing as a lay leader, raising money, giving guidance. So I see the other side of the Jewish of the Jewish activity world. I guess for my family, I you know, be able to spend more time with my wife, with my kids, with my grandkids. And so, you know, that now takes priority. That's good. So, are you you still live in New Jersey or did you go did you go south like a lot of other people or not? No, I used to go south for work. I used to go to Florida every winter because that's where the Jews were and um but no, uh, Florida has never been a thing for me. Okay, very, very good. So I'm glad to hear that you're doing well. You look great. And uh, it's important for someone like you to have an active role in the Jewish world. But let's talk about the Holocaust. Okay, you've, of course, a Holocaust survivor. I know your story. Uh, it's an incredible story. Do you think we've done enough to make sure that future generations are going to really know about the Holocaust? I know we've tried hard, but very soon they'll all be gone. So then at that point, it'll just be history. Well, you know what, Steve? I, I remember uh, sitting on the original council that Elie Wiesel called together under Carter, where we had to make the decision, yes, museum or no museum. And I remember the conversation that somebody said, we sure we want to do this museum. What happens if after all the Jews visit, it's going to be an empty museum in Washington? And, you know, we were so wrong, so wrong. The Holocaust Museum in Washington, until recently, was second visited place in Washington after the Smithsonian. Now, with the advent of the African-American Museum, it is the number three. I was just there last week. 
And I sat in a lobby and watched hundreds and hundreds of kids, not Jews, um, you know, visiting. So it's been a while. And I, and I think our anxieties, we were wrong. There are today, 70, 80 years later, more books, more films, more documentaries than you could count. Every year, there's more and more. Now, I know some of the surveys that are being taken say, you know, people don't know. Well, you want to know something? People don't know history. Americans don't know history. We're not taught history. We finished teaching history early on in high school. We don't teach geography. We're on, you know, we're an Amaha Oritz. Yeah, right. So I am not shocked. I am not shocked that the younger generation doesn't know about the Holocaust. They don't know about World War II. They don't know our history. And despite that, there continues to be an, an interest. Yeah, we have to be concerned now. In another five, 10 years, there'll be no living witnesses. But there are films and there are books and there are documentaries and there are museums. So, you know, I think the lessons will continue to be taught. Right. I think, though, that we're probably going to have to find some new vehicles. I know that, you know, uh, B'nai Zion, which I'm the president of the foundation, we recently did an incredible program where we took a woman named Montana Tucker, who was an influencer. She's a dancer, a singer, and she has only 10 million followers, okay? And and basically we took her and she went back to, to Auschwitz because her great-grandparents were killed in Auschwitz. And she went with her grandmother, she went with her mother. And the story was amazing. On TikTok, each segment was maybe about three, four minutes. And we had millions of people who watched it, many who didn't even know about the Holocaust. So I think we have to continue. You know, the museums are great, but we've got to find new ways to make sure the new generation understands it. You know, the the Shalom Foundation created this virtual witness. And I remember when I heard about it, I I was turned off. I thought it it was kitsch. But you know what, then I, I saw it in action and I saw kids interviewing this virtual survivor and it works, it works. It was like they were talking to a, to a real person. You're right, we have to be creative. We have to find new ways to do it. Um, but I'm, you know, sadly, I'm, just, I'm an optimist. Uh, no, that's good. I'm glad you're an optimist. We need people. So what, let's talk about, unfortunately, anti-Semitism. And of course, you're one of the, the leaders in the world who know, knows about it. First of all, why the spike now? Are you surprised? What's going on? Well, it depends. It depends on your perspective. First of all, it's an understanding that anti-Semitism, haya, yes, yeah, it is. It's a fact. It has always been there. It is a disease without a vaccine and without an antidote. I, look, I spent 50 years in the ADL with a major focus on anti-Semitism, racism, and hate. And we knew, and we every year reported, how serious it is. It was always serious in the United States. Our our surveys indicated that what, despite Nostra Aetate and the Catholic Church forgiving us, 30% of the Americans still believe we killed Christ. 30% still believe that we are too powerful, too controlling in business and in and in government, etc. The thing is, nobody cared. Nobody listened. Nobody wrote about it. But the other fact is that while America is not immune, we are unique. And this is a country where for 100 years, since Leo Frank till Pittsburgh, No Jew was killed because he was a Jew. And when you think in the last hundred years, millions of Jews were killed throughout the world. 
even today, Jews are being killed in Europe because, because they are Jews. So what, what made America different? We developed, we didn't, we, we didn't eliminate it, but we developed a containment strategy. A whole group of things worked. There were consequences in this country. There was litigation. There was legislation. There were coalitions. We were able to use the media. We were able to use truth. Anti-Semitism is the big lie. How do you answer the big lie? You answer it with truth. We had all these elements that worked to contain it, to keep it, if you will, in the sewers with the cover on. And then something happened in the last five, 10 years. One is uh, what we're talking on. We're talking on Zoom, the internet. You know, this new world, which brought about more education, more interaction, more communication, also provided a superhighway for hate. And all of a sudden, anti-Semitism had a new highway, superhighway, global highway, without any constraints. People were able to do it anonymously. And then we had what I would call a social political change. I would call it Trumpism, not Trump. He broke all taboos. And once you break taboos, part of, of what, say, what dealt with anti-Semitism, it was a taboo in America to be anti-Semitic. Not that you couldn't be it, you had a right to be a bigot, but there were consequences. But when you break all taboos, our taboo was broken very quickly. Now, look what happened in Charlottesville. Trump did not create the 200 anti-Semites marching in Charlottesville. They were there before. But he gave them a sense that it's okay. We're in a new world, and now anybody can say what they want, act out what they want. And also, he destroyed truth. He destroyed media. Truth was a major element for us in terms of fighting anti-Semitism, as was the media. So what you have is the anti-Semitism that was there now all of a sudden came to the fore. Now also the media was covering it. They never covered our reports. We, it was never news. So plus the fact that the American Jews lived through a trauma of Pittsburgh. All of a sudden, on these wonderful United States, Jews were being killed because they were Jews. So in a way, you can say it, it's a spike. And I would say to you, it's always been there. It's now up front. It's now OK. It's now, quote unquote, legitimate. We need to come up with a new containment policy. Right. Well, that's the question. Right. In other words, if we know that it's a reality and we know why, we're supposed to be smart people, right? So mm -hmm. can't we, can we come up with our own solutions? Can't we use it to our advantage? I don't see it happening out there. Well, again, it's a disease without an antidote. So you have to, you, you, there is no one quick fix on this. Look, one, one, one answer is, you know, Jewish pride. That's important to us because chas v'chalila, that you give the enemies a victory by frightening Jews from being Jews. So, you know, this thing a couple of weeks ago, uh, it was going to be the hatred, Shabbos hatred. You know, they would have won if Jews stopped going to shul or stopped saying, so thank God it didn't happen. But you know what? I don't know how many Jews didn't go to shul. We'll never know. So that's a concern. One of the ways of fighting it is, is positive being Jewish, continuing with Jewish pride, with Jewish traditions. So that's one answer. The other answer, sadly, and for the immediate future, Steve, is security. Security, security, security. When I was in the ADL, we always said, don't wait for things to happen. Take security into your own hands. So number one is we need to worry. Listen, in my shul today, you know, 
Sometimes there's a police car outside, but there are always volunteers from shul, you know, who stand there. For a while, that's going to be a number one priority. While we do that, we have to rebuild a coalition. We have to rebuild a firewall with the elements that exist today. And as you say, we need to use the modern day technology, modern day knowledge, communication, etc. Right. I agree with you about that. So when we talk about Jewish pride and instilling Jewish pride, and we look at, unfortunately, really, I know that I know how much it affects you and how, how deeply you care about this. When we look about assimilation in America, I mean, I don't know what the numbers are, you know, forget about what Pew says. We know it's a lot. So is there anything we can do to slow down the assimilation rate in America today? About 25 years ago, um, a friend of mine called Michael Steinhardt offered me offered me a job. He said to me, leave the ADL. There's no anti-Semitism. Don't waste your time fighting anti-Semitism. Come and work with me to strengthen the Jewish future. Okay? And he said, I'll give you $100 million, and I'll set it up, Foxman's Fund for the Future of, of American Judaism. And he said, so I'll give you $100 What would you do? And I said to him 25, 30 years ago, if I had $100 million, and Steve, 30 years ago, $100 million was a lot of money. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I said, I would take $70 million and make every kid who wants to go to Israel go to Israel. And he said to me, why? I said, because when I was 18, I went on the Machonakayitz Jewish Institute to Israel on a boat with 300 kids. Pay, I was a, I had a scholarship from the Karen Kayemet. And uh, then I went back in, in 1661 as a madrich, as a counselor. And in my 20 years that I was at the ADL, wherever I traveled around the country, who would I find? I would find Bogrim. I would find the graduates of the Summer Institute or the Year Institute in synagogues, in Jewish organizations, active in Jewish life. The other thing is I would take $30 million then and give scholarships for kids to go to day schools. Favus, because I would pay seventy, eighty, a hundred thousand dollars for one for my employees. That was a lot of money. If they had two or three kids, they wouldn't qualify for a scholarship. But they couldn't afford to send their kids to day school unless it was really, really a priority. And I said, because here too, wherever I go, I find Bogray Yeshiva day school graduates active in Jewish life. So to me, that would be the investment. I also, a long time ago, remember, wrote a piece for Haaretz, and I said, you know what Israel should do? It's very difficult in the United States for all kinds of reasons to raise money for Jewish education. But we can raise money for Israel. But Israel's future depends to a great extent on its relationship with American Jews in America. Why doesn't Israel raise the money that it raises for Israel and reinvest it in day school education, in scholarships in schools. The answer to against assimilation is education. We're not teaching our children. We're not, you know, we're not investing in our children. It's very expensive. And unless Yiddishkeit is a number one, number two, and a number three priority, it goes by the wayside. And therefore, we're assimilating. So that being said, I mean, we know that, let's say, the Solomon Schechter movement has declined dramatically. Uh, and the reform movement, I'm not even sure what the education process is. 
And in my world that I live in, which is a more modern Orthodox world, you know, we educate our kids, we send them to yeshiva, people pay tuition. I think there's vitality in that part of the community, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't even know if they would want to go if you if you offered a free education. I think it's money. I really think it's money. Okay, no. okay. It's money. If you make scholarships available, it would happen. But again, we're, we're talking about tuitions today in, in, in elementary school, 30, 40, 50,000 a year. It's very, very expensive. And that's why, you know, when I look at something which was always a tremendous source of pride to all of us was the Salute to Israel parade. And I remember going to that parade for 50 years or however, however long it's been around. And now when you go, if you're on a float, you look around, there's not a lot of people there. And if not for the modern Orthodox day schools and the yeshiva universities and the Ramaz and, and all those kind of places, there would be nobody there. No one would march. And so we're, what, do we, what do we have to do to get you know, non-affiliated, get reconstructionist, reform, conservative, Jewish pride, just to come out and to show their solidarity with Israel and being a Jew? It comes out of the education. It comes out of the schools. They prepare for Yom HaTzmaut. They also learn about Yom HaShoah. If you don't have it, they're not going to show. You know, again, it's chinuch, chinuch, chinuch. It's education, education, education. If it's not at home, at least it's at school. If it's school, then they'll show up. I hear you. Now, let's talk about, about Israel. And I've heard you say this also, but many other people, that Israel is a Jewish and a democratic country. Let's understand, what does that mean? a Jewish democratic country? I don't, I don't know it needs any explanation. Both values uh, are, are important to it. it. It is a Jewish state and it's a democratic state. It means a Jewish state, which also has respect for other faiths, other religions, other uh, nationalities, uh, other rights. You know, that's what we're taught. That Judaism respects all. It's not above all. It respects all. So, you know, so far, Israel is a Jewish democratic state. Both values are important. So when we talk about pluralism, I mean, obviously, Israel, religion and state are tied together, not like in America. So as long as that's tied together, you're always going to have this conflict. Do you think Israel would be, have, would have been better off or maybe could be better off if they were more pluralistic in the sense that religion was not a part of the government and not part of the state? Yes, I think Israel would be more democratic if there were no religious parties, and yet the democracy made sure that all faiths are respected, have their rights, are supported, you know, have respect, that one doesn't coerce or intimidate another. Yeah, I, I, I think it skews democracy when you have religious parties. We see it in a Muslim world to a detriment. We've seen it in the Christian world to a detriment. Look, I've, I've always felt, Steve, that in terms of relationship with diaspora, that even though diaspora Jews have different positions on the issue of security, even left-leaning, progressive-leaning Jews, the split between Israel and, and diaspora will will never be on the issue of Jewish security and Jewish defense, because at the end of the day, this, these are Israeli decisions. But on the issue of what I call personal status, which is on pluralism, that could make the Kara, that could make the break. And that's what we're, we're basically seeing possibly happening now, that when Israel starts redefining Jews in the diaspora, 
you know, and changing the laws, of the, uh, the definitions of Jew on, uh, for return, that will make the break. Because if Israel starts defining our children and grandchildren, in, in not, I'm not talking in terms of, of, of a, you, what I believe and understand, which is modern-day orthodoxy in Allah, which recognizes respect for others, um, when there is no respect for others' faith, then we will have a major, major break, and God forbid if that happens. So, I mean, I guess, look, we're seeing part of that today. We'll talk about that in a moment, but everyone, and I know you've heard you talk about this also, about a two-state solution. Everyone talks about a two-state solution. So what's your vision? What would a two-state solution look like? Steve, I think it's a fantasy. I think it's a political gimmick. I don't see a reality for a two-state solution in the near future. In order to have a two-state solution, you need two elements, which we do not have, and I don't see in the immediate future. One is that the Palestinians need to recognize Israel's right to exist. There's no talking about two states if you have the other possible potential state that to, you know, doesn't recognize Israel's right. Number two, you need to re-educate. So we have peace with Jordan, we have peace with Egypt, because both these countries took at least one step, and that is to recognize Israel's right to exist as a sovereign state. It did not re-educate. So there is a cold peace. There's a cold peace between Israel and Jordan. There's a cold peace between Israel and Egypt because they have not re-educated their populations. But the truth is the hatred in Egypt and Jordan was much less than it is in the Palestinian side. Look what happened in the Abraham Accords. Look how quickly a, a non-peace turned into a warm peace in the UAE and Bahrain. You know, all of a sudden, Israelis are coming, Bahrain, you know, the UAE, there's a synagogue being built, there's simchas, there's kosher food. Look how overnight two societies with two different religions with a cold peace all of a sudden are embracing. Why? Because there was no education to hatred. There was no tradition. There was no relationship but they weren't taught to hate us. And we certainly weren't taught to hate them. You don't have that in the West Bank and the Palestinians. You have generations of now, we saw it recently, 13-year-olds, 13-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds are being taught how to kill Jews. So you, you can't talk really about a two-state solution when if you're going to make peace with a country that has its generations taught to kill Jews. So... To me, it once once the Palestinians wake up and realize that Israel is here, and they say, "Okay, it's again, it's it's what Sadat did." He said, "Sulh, you exist. I want to make peace. Now let's negotiate." Jordan did the same thing. Till the Palestinians do that, we're not going anywhere. But when they do, you can have a normal relationship with a country that has taught its kids to hate you and kill you. So my answer is. 20, if, you, if they say tomorrow, you, we, we recognize you, we're talking about 20 years. We're talking about a generation, maybe a confederation between Jordan and Palestine, because Israel will not permit a, an army. Israel will not permit them to make treaties. Tell me what Palestinian leader will sign a peace treaty, which, which is a castrated peace. I don't, I don't see it happening. I don't see it happening. 
So you think it's really kind of Pollyanna when you hear all these um, Americans or political leaders talking about this wonderful dream, two states, the two people living side by side in peace. And uh, I mean, it's a, like you say, it's a gimmick. It's, it, just, it just can't exist. No, it can't. And again, we're talking about relationships with bridges and tunnels. It didn't happen between Switzerland and France. Why would it happen here? Listen, there's another, there's another interesting point. I think Begin, who I loved and respected, made a mistake. He gave the Egyptians every square inch of everything. He gave them everything. So, so when it came to peace with Jordan, Israel gave Hussein everything. So I'm afraid that no Palestinian leader will be able to make peace without getting everything. And they can't get everything. So I, I, I see it's going to be a problem because they're, they're going to have to make compromises. So if Egypt didn't compromise, Jordan didn't compromise, why should the Palestinians compromise? Now, we, all, we know what's going on in Israel now as we speak. Unfortunately, demonstrations on the street 200,000, 300,000 people, the whole change in the judicial system. And look, we, we know there will be a compromise somewhere down the road. Somehow they'll find a way of working it out. But I wonder, is the damage too, too late? Have we let the genie out of the bottle and now we are allowing the enemies of the world to say, look, if you have a prime minister of Israel, a former prime minister, Yair Lapid, who says Israel could become a dictatorship, what do you want from us? He said it. We didn't say it. Well, you know, Steve, uh, to our anti-Semites, to our enemies, truth doesn't matter. They don't need truth. If somebody calls you a dirty Jew and you show them you took a shower and you're wearing dead clothes, will make a difference. So I'm not worried. I'm not worried about our enemies. Our enemies don't need facts. Our enemies don't need us to be our enemies. You know, so I, I worry about ourselves. I worry about our relationship. I worry to what extent we're hurting ourselves, the relationship between our two countries are two peoples. I'm an optimist. So I, I you know, I believe it'll, it'll be over. But the longer, the longer it continues, uh, the harder it will be. Look, I, I gave this interview, which and some people called me courageous, as they call courageous. Um, it was a very painful thing to say. But but I said it when I said it. And I remember the Jerusalem Post then wrote an editorial uh, the Sunday after my interview, which said, the, it was called The Price. And it basically explained why I said what I said when I said it, in that 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 Bibi and his government shouldn't say six months from now, from then, oh, we didn't realize what the consequences would be. Well, the consequences were changing the nature of Israeli society, its democracy, its respect for minorities, its respect for pluralism, its respect, you know, uh, will be that American Jews and diaspora Jews will distance themselves. So I hope he's going to wake up one morning and say, okay, enough, let's make a shara. The longer it takes, the harder it will be to make, to, to make a compromise. Listen, I'm sitting in, 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 in New Jersey, so it's easier for me to say, you know what, if the issue is about him in prison, I don't think, I, I don't think, give him a pardon. I don't think it's worth six months of the prime minister in, in jail to destroy our democracy, if that's what it's all about. And I think at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. Because here's the same prime minister who I remember is talking about Israel's democracy, talking about his, the separation of powers. So I know where he really feels. So now he's got a personal issue 
Let's find a way to resolve it so that Olam Yisrael doesn't pay the price. I think that's a really great idea. I know you're an optimist, so I'm sure that you feel that the diaspora Jewry will somehow unite around Israel. But we're seeing uh, a lot of dissension. Uh, when I look at American Jewry, where, where do you see it in, in 10 years or 20 years, looking at the trajectory where we're going now? What does it look like? Now, a couple of years ago, I was invited to the White Plantation for a um, discussion on whether Jewish civilization will survive 2050. And what they did was they had a group of um, scholars study Spengler, Toynbee, the historians of history, to see what it was um, that, why was it that the Roman civilization disappeared? Why was it that the Greek civilization disappeared? Why was it that the Incas disappeared? What's the difference between them and Judaism? To find what the difference, and they, and interestingly enough, they found it. And they said, why did Judaism and Jewish civilization survive? Because after every, because what happened is, after the Roman Empire tragedy, no Roman wanted to say, I want to be a Roman. No Greek, after the Greek Empire felt, got up and said, I want to be Greek. And we don't know what happened to the Incas. But in Jewish history, after every tragedy, the destruction of the first temple, the second temple, and if you will, the greatest of all, the Shoah, the Jews got up, brushed themselves up, and said, I want to continue being a Jew. That's the secret of Jewish survival. Beautiful. I still see it. I see it, you know, I, you see it in Israel every day uh, with all the tragedies, with all the pain. I see it in America now. So there's anti-Semitism. There's a greater, greater sense of Jewish identity being wanting to be Jewish. So to me, that's my optimism is, again, if after the Shoah, Jews got up, they rebuilt it, they built Israel. They built families. They built a Jewish future. So I don't, I don't worry about the future of Jewish people. It may be painful. It may be difficult. But we'll continue to survive as long as we want to be Jewish. Abe, what you're saying is prophetic. I love it. I think it's your right. And that's the point. As long as we want to be Jewish, we want to be proud about being Jewish. So this is what I want to do when we end. I have this little thing I call the lightning round. So I want you to just think about it. Try to give me like the first thing that comes to your mind. Just a few, a few quick questions. Okay. So who was, besides I'm sure you're going to say your parents, your wife, who was the greatest influence of you on your life? Well, it was, it was my father. It wasn't, he taught me, he taught me faith. He taught me hope. He taught me Yiddishkeit. Listen, I, I grew up as a Catholic. He's the one that, that took me uh, from Christian. You know, I, I used to say my prayers in, in, in Latin. Uh, you know, he taught my, me the Shema. He took me to Shul for the first time. He taught me that, uh, that the Shoah was not God's doing, it was man's doing. So, yeah. And he, he was a Jewish historian. He was a Jewish Oskan. Listen, he he was an editor of Bloy Weiss, the, the revisionist paper in Warsaw. Uh, he was in the Irgun, which is one of the reasons we didn't go to Israel in '48. So yeah, he uh, that was the most important influence in my life. What about the greatest leader you ever met? Ah, uh, well, that's tough. Um, I would say Begin and Sharon. Um, Begin and Sharon. Um, I was close. I was closer to Sharon than to Begin, but I had the privilege of knowing them both personally. What about the smartest person you ever met? Um, Kissinger. Kissinger. Okay. And um, what about the person you respect the most? So you've met everybody, but who do you respect the most when you think about it? 
my wife. <laughs> okay, that's a good answer. Now, what about, you've heard every speaker in the world. Who's the greatest speaker you ever heard? Kennedy. John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy, yeah. Right. Is there anybody today alive who you would like to meet who you haven't met yet? I think I've met them all. <laughs> I met all the popes. <laughs> I met all the presidents. Uh, no, I can't think of it at the moment. No. Okay. What about in history? If you had to go back in history, you could meet any one person. Who would it be? Okay. What about your your favorite holiday, your favorite Chag? It's Pesach. It's Pesach because it's it's family. It's you know, it brings everybody together for a longer period of time where we share my salach and we spend time with each other. Wonderful. And what about a country? I know you visited probably everything in the world, but is there a country is there a country you still would like to see that you haven't seen yet? No. No. I I, I you know I the two places, Israel, Jerusalem is always first, Rome is second, and now Lisbon has become third. Okay. What about your favorite vacation spot? Where is that? It's still Israel. <laughs> not, it's not really vacation, but it's it's still the place, always the first place to go. It ruins all other vacations, because when you start planning where to go, it's, we always wind up Israel first. I hear you. Well, listen, thank you, thank you so, so much for your insights, your wisdom, your honesty. And I'm sure all of the listeners that we have are going to enjoy it tremendously. And uh, thank you again. Hope to speak to you in the near future. And good health to you and your wife, okay? And a chag kosher v'sameach to you. Okay, be well. Bye-bye-bye. Amen. Take care, Steve. Take care. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Unrestricted, hosted by Steve Savisky. The show was produced and edited by Gilad Brownstein and is a production of B'nai Zion.